بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد وأنتم الأعلون إن كنتم مؤمنين صدق الله العظيم my dear respected elders, dear ulama, dear friends, our brothers, our young uh, brothers as well who are here. Uh, on this uh, evening, Friday evening, uh, it's nice to be in your midst. And the discussion uh, for today is uh, based on our current state. Uh, people are looking around and there are many things going on around the Muslim world and not just among the Muslims around the world but also among Muslims in the different countries including India. There's unfortunately to a certain level some people are very depressed. Uh, some people are giving up their faith. Some people are questioning their faith and there's turmoil and turbulence in the mind of people. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to uh, make it sound worse than it is. I'm trying to be as realistic as possible. Uh, I'm not trying to make it seem like it's very bleak because my responsibility and the responsibility of the ulama has always been to create optimism, not to create pessimism, not to create uh, despondency and hopelessness. Islam has always been about hope. So that's why I want to discuss the ups and downs of history. And I want to explain that today what we're experiencing, is, uh, what we're experiencing, whether that be in India or anywhere else in the world, is not necessarily the first time that we have undergone this or not necessarily the worst of what Muslims have ever experienced. Throughout history, the Ummah has faced many challenges because this is not Jannah, this is not paradise. This is the dunya. Jannah is an entirely pure and beautiful place. And Jahannam is an entirely ugly place. That's, that's the hereafter. In this world, things will go up and down, just like with anything else. So throughout our history, the Ummah has faced many, many challenges. There were periods of immense greatness. But then there have always also been times of stagnation and upheaval. Countless attacks has been faced by the Muslims in which enemy forces have conspired to bring down or bring about its destruction and corrupt it even from within. Cities, Muslim cities have been raised to the ground. The deity of Islam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, has been accused of violence. Our scripture has been misunderstood. The Quran has been misunderstood. Our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa has been scorned, called bad names. Our history has been deplored by people. Our heritage has been maligned. And our community has been condemned. Our scholars have been killed and slain. If you just look at what the British did in the Jamia Masjid to the Chandi Chok of Delhi, then that will tell us itself. But then there's so many other places where the scholars have been killed. Its activists have been persecuted. Its well-wishers have been silenced. Its teachings have been distorted. It has also suffered from internal assault. Many of its followers have, many of its own followers sometimes, Muslims themselves have brought Islam into disrepute, misrepresented its teachings, misapplied its force, and committed injustices in the name of Islam. Muslims themselves have done this. Thereby they've contributed to the environment of Islamophobia that we see today in many places. There's more Islamophobia expressed today than there was maybe 50 years ago. And some of it has to do with our own people who misrepresent the faith and do things in the name of Islam. 
So these same people, they invigorate those people who want to annihilate Islam. They give them fuel. So history has recorded all of this turbulence and oscillation in great detail. And any reader of history would not be surprised, should not be surprised to be honest, to see this cycle in motion yet again. We've had all of these happen, things happen before. And any student of history, anybody who reads history, will be able to understand that this is not the worst of it. Despite being taken many times, Islam, despite being taken many times to the brink of destruction, it's always re-emerged as a force to be reckoned with, always. Islam has an amazing staying power and endurance more than any other faith. And I will prove that to you. This is not just the claim we're making, just because we're Muslims. Alhamdulillah, our scripture, the Quran, still remains intact. In the same way, it, and uncorrupted, in the same original language. Not a letter has changed. And our Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, is still loved and revered as much as he ever was. Our way of life, Islam is still faithfully adhered to by many people across the world. It is obviously the religion of at least one-fifth of the world's population. It is an active mechanism. Islam is an active mechanism that binds a diverse multi-ethnic community across the world as one ummah. That's what we call the ummah. It's Islam which binds us. For example, I travel quite a bit. Anywhere I go and I feel that somebody is a Muslim and I say, Assalamu alaikum, or they say salam to me, suddenly you feel a sense of peace and security. Assalam, peace be upon you. Suddenly you feel like you share something in common, even though the person may not be of Indian heritage, which is my heritage. He may be from a totally different heritage, never seen him before. But immediately, as soon as you say salam, it has this barakah and this blessing. A friendly smile suddenly comes up. Muslims anywhere in the world, you can do this with. And a comfort and a sense of security comes about. Muslims are able to break bread together, eat together. With the name of Allah, Bismillah. And even eat from the same plate. We have no problem with eating from any other Muslim. In fact, probably any other people, we don't have that kind of racism that we can't eat with others. Especially if he's a Muslim from any background, any level of society. For example, a few years ago, I went to a, Western, a West African country called Senegal. And it was myself and two other friends of mine, also originally Gujarati friends. We sat down and there were several other guests in this same house. They were from different African countries and tribes. And our host was obviously Senegalese African host. We'd only met her about an hour earlier. We'd only met each other about an hour earlier. And he put down some food, a big platter. And the tradition there is everybody eats together. So everybody washed their hands. And with people we've just met one hour ago or half an hour ago of different tribes around the world, we started eating together from the same plate. Now where would you see this kind of harmony? So that's why don't become despondent. There is still a lot of faith. There's still a barakah and blessing in the ummah. Muslims, mashallah, uh, the world over, they still unite because of the formula of tawheed, la ilaha illallah, because we share this. For example, Another country north of Senegal is Mauritania. In the capital, we went to visit an old scholar who was about 82 years old at the time. He's very old, uh, very weak, and he was very sick, so he wasn't meeting anybody. But when he found out that a guest had arrived from another country, he said, the only reason I have agreed to meet with you is because of sharing La ilaha illallah, our faith. Our faith for us in the Muslim community around the world opens up doors for us. 
That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in his eternal words that the believers are brothers. That the believers are all brothers. The stronger the faith though, the stronger the brotherhood. If you want more brotherhood to be in the Muslim ummah, the faith needs to increase. The iman needs to be strengthened. Then you will have more faith. And more faith means more brotherhood because you'll be willing to sacrifice more for your brother. The Prophet ﷺ said that the believer or the believers in their mutual kindness, compassion and sympathy are just like one body. That's what we're supposed to be like. I know we have scenes today. We have situations today around the world where it seems like this this body has become separated with people of the same ethnicity, same continent, want to separate themselves from one another, which is a really sad case. That's why our faith is supposed to provide us compassion, kindness and sympathy. Uh, people from other faiths, they find it very difficult to understand. The love that Muslims have for their Prophet. They just can't understand why we go so crazy when our Prophet is criticized. Somebody produces a cartoon and people are ready to take to the streets and you know do whatever it takes in different parts of the world. Somebody produces a cartoon in Denmark and the Indian Muslims are on the street, Pakistani Muslims are on the street, Arab Muslims are on the street. They just think, what's the fuss? We criticize Jesus all the time and we Christians, nothing doesn't make a difference to us. Free speech, postmodernism, let them say what they want. But no, our faith, our love, this shows that there's a love. Of course, we need to be careful how we react. I'm not justifying all of the expressions of protest that take place, not, not at all. Some people do go crazy. What we need to be... But the whole idea shows that there's a, still a lot of zeal and fervor, but it just needs to be directed correctly. But today my job is to just show that we have hope. There's a lot of hope still. Islam is not dead. That's why people of other faiths find it very difficult to understand this love that the, uh, the, the Muslims have for the Prophet and the reason why there's a confusion is because they don't know the Prophet They know our love for him, that people are ready to be fanatical, but they don't know the Prophet They know Muslims. They know some of the bad things that Muslims do, some of the bad attitude that they display, but they don't know the Prophet They know that Muslims claim that the Prophet is the greatest man to have ever lived. And he was kind and he was generous and he was loving and he was benevolent, he was honorable, he was dignified. All of that we claim, but they can't see the Prophet Prophet is gone. There's no YouTube videos, there's nothing of the Prophet that you can show them today. The only thing we can show them is if we try to act like the Prophet Otherwise, it's just a claim. And the non-Muslims will look at us and say, okay, your Prophet was supposed to be a great person, but how am I supposed to know that? If he's a great person, why aren't you great? Why don't you represent him? That's why the, the da'wah, the invitation to others, the demonstration to others of what the Prophet is supposed to be like, needs to be through our personality, behavior, akhlaq, characteristics. Otherwise, it's just a claim. And people, Imam Ghazali writes this as well in psychology, it's clear psychology, that people more often learn from somebody's behavior than they learn from their words. If you see somebody doing something, you're more humans generally. There's something in psychology, it's when you see somebody, for example, smiling, you want to smile. Humans, the human brain reciprocates, it copies, it emulates. This is a study done on the brain. 
that when you see somebody smiling, you try to smile, you try to do the same thing. When you see somebody crying, you will not smile because it's going to look like an insult. You will frown, you will make yourself look sad to try to show some empathy. Say, normal human, it's a normal human reaction. It's not the brain is literally, uh, th that is what the brain is actually wired to do. Unless there's exceptions to this. That's why the Prophet ﷺ told us that one of the greatest sadaqah is that you meet with your brother with a smile, with a smile on your face. Be wajhin taliq in a jovial face. And the reason for that is that when you meet somebody, if you meet them with a smile, then you've already done half the job of breaking down barriers, of already making them feel comfortable. If you meet somebody with a straightforward face, right? You're wondering, there's some people who can't smile. There's somebody you're speaking to and have you, have you spoken to somebody with sunglasses on? Have you spoken to anybody with sunglasses on? It is very frustrating because you don't know the eyes tell you so much. So when you're speaking to somebody with sunglasses on, it's very rude to be honest. In fact, people say that the niqab stops people from communicating with you. This is one of the arguments. To be honest, I think it's more difficult to speak to somebody in sunglasses than it is to speak to a woman with a niqab on. Because the eyes tell you so much. Whereas sunglasses, you're just wondering like, what are you saying? Are you agreeing with me? Are you disagreeing with me? Are you angry? Are you uh, accepting what is going on? So the Prophet said, show a jovial face. That breaks down so many insecurities. It provides a good response. And this is what uh, the, the brain science is telling us that people impersonate things. So that's why we need to, with our behavior, we don't have to keep saying you must, this is Islam, this is Islam. Just show your behavior. They'll be curious. Why do you do this? Why are you different from everybody else? And then they'll say, oh, he's a Muslim. I met a Muslim yesterday or the day before and he's also like this. That means it must be from Islam. So this is what you call passive da'wah. It's much more, it's much more effective than when you tell somebody and you don't show it. We ask Allah for tawfiq. That's why the believer, the Prophet ﷺ has his character, compassion, empathy for humanity, complete moral rectitude. This is what the believers, they look at the Prophet ﷺ, wherever Muslims are, if the Prophet ﷺ is abused, the Muslims will generally take a stand. Alhamdulillah, this, is, this love for him is still continues. Now, There's a book that we published in under White Thread Press a few years ago, which was published. The original book was written by Maulana Abul Hassan Ali Nadwi, who was from UP, from Lucknow, from Takiakala, beyond that, Rai Bareli in UP. He wrote a book in the 1940s, before the 1950s. It was called The Saviors of Islamic Spirit. Tariqi Dawatu Azimat. In Arabic, I think, Rijalu Dawa something. It was translated into English in about the 1950s. Now it sounds a bit archaic because the language has developed uh, since then and changed since then. So it sounds a bit archaic. But this book, mashallah, it is a wonderful book that must be a classic. Everybody should read, especially at this time. Because it answers so many questions. So many people have read it and this is the benefit it's had for them. It's had the same benefit for me. What it does is that even if you just read the first volume, it's in five volumes or six volumes or something, but the first volume, which spans six uh, or seven centuries of the great upheavals and the challenges and the problems of the Muslim Ummah and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always supported and brought back the Muslims from a low. It's a wonderful book. It really helps the situation. So, we worked on this book for about 10 years to edit it, revise it. We weren't working on it full time. We were working on it as and when we got time with our other projects. So that's why it took 10 years. But we wanted it to be right. Because we wanted it to be in modern English so people can understand it of today. And we wanted to provide a solution. Because we saw that there's a lot of hopelessness and despondency among the Muslim Ummah because of various different things that have happened. The Prophet ﷺ did say that a time will come 
when there will be fitan, which will be trials and temptations and mischief and problems and challenges. Each one will make the other one seem like nothing. Each one will make the other one seem like insignificant. A fitna will come, a challenge will come. Like for example, the, the cartoons. And people will do something and then it will go away and you think, okay, now we can rest. And then suddenly there's going to be another fitna. There'll be a bombing in London. God forbid. Right? As there was. Then it's going to all finish and then there's something happening in France. And then there's something happening in Syria. A fitna one, one will follow the other, one will follow the other. And the solution to this is what we're trying to look at today. How do we deal with these things? Because these things, when a fitna comes, so many people are losing their faith because of this. What is the point of being a mu'min? What is the point of being a believer? Especially when you add ignorance to the whole thing. When you have ignorance, you don't know your history, you don't know what it means to be a mu'min or a believer, you don't know who Allah is. If we don't know who Allah is, how we're going to even survive? Because Allah is who we survive through, to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there's a lot of uh, despair in the Muslim world. This book provides a lot of optimism, mashallah. For example, if you look at the situation today, how many of you have been to Masjid Laqsa? Probably very few, you should try to go. A lot of Indians actually go there. A lot of the Christians from India, I remember the first time I went, before me was a whole group of Christian, Christians from India, probably South India somewhere. And they go because obviously there's the, the church of the sepulcher, sepulcher and, and numerous other places related to Isa salam and Maryam salam. That's why uh, they go there. And Muslims should go there because when the Muslims there see Muslims coming from other places of the world, that they said, we don't need your chanda. We don't need your funding. What we need is you to come and show us solidarity. Because they feel that they are basically struggling on their own. And it makes them feel so good when you actually go there. And it makes them feel very comfortable that mashallah somebody supports us. It's a wonderful feeling they have. And the other thing is that you can go anywhere in the world, but you'll only be rewarded for going to three places. You can go to other places, but if you want thawab and reward for every penny you spend, every rupee you spend, and every moment you, you spend, is if you go to Makkah, Mukarramah, Madinah, Munawwara, or if you go to Jerusalem, or Masjid Laqsa, because the hadith says, لا تشد الرحال إلا إلى ثلاثة, that uh, uh, the, the, the whole point of this hadith is to show that from a religious perspective, there are three places where you'll be rewarded for going. If you go, for example, to Abu Dhabi to see the great white mosque of uh, Abu Dhabi, you can go to uh, look at the architecture, but you're not going to be rewarded extra. In fact, for you to pray next door in your mahalla, in your area, locality, in your masjid is superior and more rewarding than for you to go and pray somewhere else. Because that's your responsibility. But when you go to Makkah, Mukarramah, Medina, Munawwara for Umrah and to see the Prophet ﷺ to visit and you go to Masjid Al-Aqsa, you get rewarded for that. So Masjid Al-Aqsa, at least we can still visit. There are problems there nearly every week. There's a problem, a new issue. May Allah give them respite and may Allah give them strength. But if it's under siege today, then in the past it was actually stripped out of Muslim control for nearly a century. For nearly a century, it was took, taken out of the Muslim control. From the year 1099 to 1187, it was actually lost to the Crusaders. Muslims had no power over it. Thousands of Muslims at the time were killed inside its sacred precincts. In fact, they were falsely promised refuge. But then an orgy of death ensued afterwards. To such a degree that the crusaders boasted of being knee-high in blood. I read that and I couldn't, from the historian I read this, but I couldn't understand this, that how can you have so much blood that your horses could be knee-high in it? It was only after visiting that I discovered how it's possible. Because the streets in the old city that surround the masjid, the masjid is on this large hilltop. Right, which they call the, the, the haram or whatever they call the, the, the hilltop. Surrounding that is a city with walls, still very intact. And there are main gates that go into the, the, the uh, Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem itself. Then there are gates that go into the masjid area. 
the large expanse of Masjid area where Qubbatul Sahra and the Qibali Mosque is, which we call the Masjid Al-Aqsa. But that whole thing is Masjid Al-Aqsa. So the streets are very narrow. You can hardly take a car in there. So there you can understand that so many people were killed and the blood would rise. The blood could rise quite easily, you could understand that. In fact, during this period, there was no call to prayer, no adhan that sounded from its minarets. No Quran recital was reverberating around its dome. No sermon embellished its pulpit. No forehead touched down into the mihrab. And its walls were actually yearning for worshippers to return. In fact, a golden cross was mounted on top of the, the dome of the rock, the Qubbatul Sahra. A, a golden cross was put on there and it was renamed the Templum Domini. The Aqsa Masjid itself was turned into a palace and the adjoining areas, the, Marwa, uh, the, the, the Musalla Marwani, it's on the side, subterranean area, that was all made into royal stables. Let's look at Baghdad. Baghdad has been ransacked. Baghdad shock and awe campaigns, recent shock and awe campaigns of the last 15-20 years. It's actually experienced much worse than that. It's bad now. Especially for Sunnis, it's really bad. Because one of the big areas of Baghdad is called A'zamiya. It's called A'zamiya because Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah was buried there. Al-Imam Al-A'zam. That's where the mausoleum is, that's where the big masjid is. <clears throat> that entire area is called, like Fraser Town, it's called A'zamiya, then there's Karkh. And now, unfortunately, much, many of the Shias have taken over a lot of the areas of Baghdad and the Muslims, from what I hear, have been concentrated into small areas. So there's a problem there. May Allah bring it back. To, because if you go to Baghdad, Baghdad has been one of the, our greatest cities. Some, maybe even more than Damascus. Maybe more than Basra and Kufa. And there are so many great people who are buried there. Amazing personalities. Junaid al-Baghdadi, Ma'roof al-Karqi, Imam al-Azam Abu Hanifa, Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Just so many people are buried there. It's an amazing place. <clears throat> so it's experienced worse before this. The Tatars, the Tatars, after they ravaged many of the Muslim cities, when they came down and started their onslaught, when they, after ravaging many of the Muslim cities in Transoxiana and in Khurasan, which is basically Persia today, and Afghanistan and Uzbekistan and those areas, after they ravaged them, leveling each of those cities to the ground, basically just massacring and destroying everything. They carried on an advance to commit huge massacres, huge massacres in the capital of the Muslim empire. Records indicate that in those days, there was a million people that were slaughtered in Baghdad alone. A million people were slaughtered in Baghdad alone. And the Khalif, the Khalif of the entire Muslim land or lands, he was rolled up in a carpet. He was rolled up in a carpet and beaten to death. And the reason why he wasn't just killed outright is the Tatars, the Mongols, were very superstitious people. And somebody had told them that if the Khalif's blood falls on the ground, then something bad will happen to them. So they, they were looking for ideas how to kill him without his blood spilling on the ground. So they rolled him up in carpets and they beat him up to death. Now, I don't know which is worse. Today is worse or that time is worse. All I'm trying to tell you that don't become despondent. We've had worse times before. <clears throat> In fact, afterwards, the Muslims of Baghdad, imagine this is the Darul Khilafah. They were forced to participate in drinking bouts, in drinking wine during Ramadan. They were forced to do that. Wine was sprinkled in their masjids and the adhan was prohibited. <clears throat> in fact, I'll just tell you a story from recent times. We have a charity in the UK which is called Rahma Mercy. It's run by a Maulana, an alim. And he's working with, uh, in Albania. Albania has suffered uh, under the communists. 
they, they uh, not just communists, but even their leaders, whoever they were during the time of the communists, they had banned all kind of teaching. Uh, drinking is very common there, even among those who considered to be Muslim. And the mufti of a particular area, under the communists, he used to be the mufti of the area, they made him into the guard of a wine brewery. He became the guard, the security guard, during the communist time, he was forced to do that. And this is just about a hundred years ago or so. Alhamdulillah, today, his son is now the mufti again, now that it's all finished. And his other son, he's working with this charity. And that same brewery has just been purchased to make it a madrasa. Now imagine the beauty of that. His father was forced to look after it while it was a brewery and now it's become a madrasa. Nothing is beyond the hand, beyond Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's power. As long as you work, Allah just wants to see us work and make an effort and not lose hope. Losing hope is one of the worst things you can do because when you lose hope, you have no ideas left. You need inspiration to be able to do something. When you're hopeless, your mind shuts down. So psychologically, when you're hopeless, your mind shuts down. And Iblis wants to create despondency. In fact, Ablasa, the meaning of that is to create despondency and hopelessness. This is what Iblis wants from us. Because when you're hopeless, your love of Allah, your trust in Allah diminishes, and then you can't do anything. Otherwise, the believer is very strong if the heart is strong, if the connection to Allah, that's how we survive. In fact, let's talk about another time, <clears throat> about 500 years ago. Imam Suyuti, rahmatullahi alayhi, he lived the end of the 800s uh, Hijri. Today it's uh, 1440, is our Islamic year. So just over 400 years ago, in <clears throat> around the 890s, 70s, 60s, this is when Imam Suyuti was in Egypt. He was a scholar of Egypt. I've actually been to his grave. It's a, it's a very prominent building, right? He's buried there in Cairo. He died in 911 Hijri, which is 1505, right? 1505 Gregorian. And if he died in 911, he was alive during the 900s, early 900s. At that time, uh, do you remember about uh, the beginning of this or the ending of the last millennium in 1999 there was this for those who know there was this uh, whole there was this whole concern and paranoia that everything's going to shut down because of the millennium bug right if those of you who uh, should know about that this was worse they felt that if it's 900 then when it becomes 1000 Islamic Hijri after the Prophet's migration, the world is going to end. And there were some people of that time, some scholars as well, who wrote books in interpreting certain hadith to show that the world is going to end by 1000 Hijri. Now people are going to get concerned. So Imam Suyuti did a lot of research <clears throat> and he wrote a risala, a small book called Al Kashf. And Mujawazat Hadihil Ummah Al Alf. Treaties on the passage of this Ummah through the millennium, proving that it's impossible for Qiyamah to occur before 1000 years. So at 1000 Hijri, the, there will be no Qiyamah and we will carry on. Now, what's very interesting, he shows that there's no reliable narration to prove that it's going to end. Anything that the other scholars have quoted, they're weak, misinterpreted, and they're not relevant. So he showed this. Now, we are, li uh, he, we are living four centuries after that, 400 years after that. And the Qiyamah has still not arrived. So he was right, obviously. There's a lot of discussion today. You get these videos, YouTube clips, about uh, <clears throat> Mahdi being born. And the Dajjal having been sighted. And a child being born with one eye. And khalas, you know, 30 years left, 40 years left. In fact, there's been predictions. That the Dajjal will come. Jesus will come, peace be upon him, Isa alayhi salam. 
I remember the last prediction was I think 2007 somebody did. And then there's been others as well. They all come and pass. That's why once when we had this, when you're younger, you get a bit infatuated with these things. Because there's so much hopelessness, despondency, corruption, problem, subjugation, oppression. So you feel like, okay, only Mahdi can now sort the, uh, solve the matter. But that's despondency. We've not been told anywhere that you must wait for Mahdi. In fact, I don't even want to be around when he comes. Do you know why? Because when Mahdi comes, radiallahu an, then Dajjal will come. And Dajjal is one of the worst fitna that will be awaited. Now just think of it. For you, what is your biggest fitna? Right? It's all men here. There's no women here. Generally for men, the biggest fitna is women. Temptation, I mean. Temptation. Where they don't want to, but they commit haram. The fitna for women sometimes is something else. Right? But for men, this is one of the fitna. And they have other fitna. Everybody can think of their own temptation. Dajjal is supposed to be worse than that. Why do I want to risk myself? I want to rather die before he comes in hopefully a good state. I don't want to have to deal with that. So what is this idea of waiting for Dajjal, waiting for Mahdi to come and sort it out? Why aren't we trying to sort it out? If you look around the world, Turkey right now seems to be a beacon of hope. Despite not having the same funding and, and resources as other Muslims, some other Muslim countries have, they are, when the Rohingya happen, friends of mine who've been there for relief, they say the biggest relief organizations there are the Turkish ones. Turkey has taken in more than 3 million Syrians. And not just taken them in, but given them places to stay. In fact, given a lot of them citizenship as well. Which country will do that? Most countries, if they take them in, they'll put them into refugee camps. They won't let them mix with their people because it dilutes jobs. In fact, I've been to Turkey with a, a tour, a, 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 an official tour. They don't even want to call them refugees. You must call them guests. And the, Tur the, the Syrians who are in Turkey, they would do anything for, for, for Turkey because of the respect that they've been given. <clears throat> So, a lot of people look at Turkey for some kind of hope. But the reason that they have hope is because they are doing something, they're trying something, despite not having the same resources. You need that iman. And they're doing it very wisely. They're not doing it in any kind of crude fashion. They're doing it very wisely. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect and increase them because that's very important. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in many ahadith, in fact the Quran, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ السَّاعَةِ أَيَّانَ مُرْسَاهَا and so on. So I remember when you're young and you get a bit despondent and you want to look for the Mahdi, so you're like wondering and you get excited when somebody tells you that uh, Dajjal has been born and, and so on and so forth and you're just waiting for this and I, we asked our, one of our teachers and he said look this is something that Allah has kept concealed so you must just leave it to Allah right our responsibility is to try to do the best for ourselves without Mahdi in the picture when he comes he comes but we must try to do because our own qiyamah, our own death is going to come possibly before that. It's closer to us than the coming of Mahdi. So now what's very interesting is Imam Suyuti proved in his time that at least another three, four hundred years are needed before qiyamah can come. Because he shows these calculations in hadith. I don't want to go through them right now. But he shows these calculations that uh, when Dajjal comes, he'll be here for 40 years. And then when so-and-so comes, he'll be here. Uh, sorry, when Isa salam comes, he'll be here for 40 years. And then this has to happen. He says there's going to be about 200 years minimum. If you look at 200 years minimum, then from 900, 200 years will go to 1100. So that's why he proved that Qiyamah cannot come at 1000. But then he did say that it will come at 1500. 
He did say that it will come at 1500 years. How many years do we have left for 1500 years? We've got 60 years, so get ready. But, you see, nobody knows this. The same arguments, the same proofs that Imam Suyuti has used to show that the, that the day of judgment will go beyond a thousand from 900, and the events that he said will have to happen, which will take 200 years minimum, none of those events have happened yet. That means it has to go beyond 1500. Of course, we leave the rest to Allah. This is just to give hope that there's still probably a lot of time left. And as I said, if Baghdad has feared worse, gone down like that and it's come back up, and now it's gone down again, it can come back up. Same thing throughout the world. We've had problems. I mean, that's why I say if you read as people of subcontinent, if you read the Tariq Da'wah Azimat, I think it's the fourth volume or the fifth volume, the one in which he describes Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi Rahmatullah, uh, Mujaddid Al-Fithani. And he shows how Akbar and what he did, how he messed up the system and created this deen ilahi corrupted the whole idea trying to amalgamate and mix and synthesize the two religions into some new religion and how that was such a great threat to the Muslim Ummah but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends Mujadid al-Fithani Allah always helps somebody there that's why do not lose hope I see turbulence it makes me feel sad but it just gives me himma to try to do more it never makes me feel okay now forget it just go to sleep wait for Mahdi to come that's just not the answer. And that's why we're not told when Isa salam, Mahdi, Dajjal, Qiyamah, the Dabba, all of these things are going to come, they're going to come in the future. Allah exclusively has this knowledge. So, I was in my 20s when I finally read Tariq Dawat Adhimat. And when I read it, it answered so many questions for me. You know, from when you're 13, 14, you start thinking for yourself, right? And you're not just thinking of cricket or football, right? Because if you are obsessed by cricket or football, then nothing matters in the world as long as your team wins, right? These are all, uh, these are all uh, you can say, opium of the masses. Religion is not the opium of the masses. This is opium. This is the new opium of the masses, so if that's what matters to you and you don't care about what happens, then, then it's a different story. Then it doesn't matter for you. But if you're concerned, then this book will answer a lot of questions. It's in Urdu, it's in English. And I wished that I had read this kitab when I was about 13, 14. Because I would have just had a different perspective. I would have been more discerning, more understanding of the situation. It provided an understanding of the world events, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows. As I say in Urdu, Nashebo Faraz. Right? This is what it provides. It tells you what happens to the Ummah and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always helps. So from it, I learned from the different people. It deals with the first 600 years, and I'll, I'll quickly explain to you what I mean. But it tells you that you must have himma, you must have a lot of trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you must try to do your part. A lot of people ask, like yesterday we had those questions, what is our responsibility towards these big Muslim countries that are fighting with each other? I said, we have no responsibility towards them except make dua. Our responsibility is on an individual level. Right? Now, imagine this, if we don't know this, and we have a concern. Now even when you have a concern, you have to be careful. Otherwise the concern can actually make you despondent. So we're going to think, okay, these Muslim countries, they're fighting with each other or they're not doing good or whatever. What's our responsibility? And you sit there and keep criticizing. And you say, what's our... And you know you're helpless because you can't do anything. So then you feel despondent. I'm telling you, it is not your responsibility because... We're not at that level. We can do nothing. That's why in England, there's a whole dis uh, discussion of Brexit. Every day the news is talking about Brexit. And I'm like, this is a waste of time for me. Because I can't do much. I can only go and vote one day. 
That's it. If they have another referendum, I'll vote again. But that's it. I can't do anything else. So why should I even bother? They're going to have a meeting. So the news, is it calls in experts before the meeting. What do you think is they're going to say in the meeting? Like, why do you care? Let them have the meeting and then we'll discuss. So they will waste the two, three days of coming with. Like, what a waste of time. That's why a lot of the news is despondence. It's a waste of time. I'll give you an example. I had subscribed to The Economist. Wonderful, mag- you know, wonderful uh, magazine or uh, uh, whatever you call it. Uh. And then I didn't have time to read all of it about two, three years ago. So now I've got a pile, right? Uh, this is the test now. What I do is when I travel, I take a few and I, and I, and I go through it. It takes me maybe about 20 minutes to go through it. Whereas when it was the current issue, it would take me three, four hours to go through everything relevant or what I thought was relevant. Today I read it and it's talking about Trump. We already know what's happened now. All of the analysis, projections, predictions, all done. So ignore, 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 ignore. And you see how much is useless. You will see how much of this stuff is useless. There's small issues in there which are significant, that are enduring and forever, that will benefit you. But do a test. Take an old newspaper or new old magazine, Time magazine, Newsweek, uh, Hindus, what is it called, India Times, whatever it is, and read some back and you'll see how much is useless. And then read something that, uh, that you thought was relevant and see how much relevant it did have. Focus on building ourselves. Focus on doing something productive. Otherwise, a lot of this is just distraction. <clears throat> so now, in this first book, there are, uh, it talks about Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. He was the first mujaddid of the Muslim Ummah, because the Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith of Abu Dawud that uh, every hundred years Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will sem- send somebody to revive the deen. Now we're already gone beyond the 1400. So whoever was the reviver, and there's many opinions of who that reviver was, has already gone. We have to wait for the 1500s for the reviver. But the reviver of the first year, the first century, was Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. The reviver of the second century was Imam Shafi'i. He died in 204. And then you got the reviver of the 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century was Ghazali. And Imam Suyuti thinks he's the reviver of the 9th century. Umar ibn Abdul Aziz was probably the most comprehensive reviver and mujaddid. Because not only was he an alim, but he also was the Muslim ruler of the time. No other person after him has been a reviver and a ruler. They've been scholars, like Ghazali, etc. But they've never been a ruler as well. He died when he was only 40 something. He was only Khalifa for two years and some months. But the change he was able to bring in two, two years and six months was amazing. He changed it to such a degree with his fairness and honesty that in North Africa, during the, the second or third year of his, there was nobody who could accept zakat. Everybody had been sufficed and enriched to a certain degree that there was nobody mustahiq and entitled to zakat. He had to be sent back to the Baytul Mal. That tells you that when you've got a righteous leader, despite all odds, he was fighting with his own family because they were the ones who had confiscated many lands and used the Baytul Mal for their own reasons. When he came, became the Khalif, his wife, who was uh, Fatima bint Abdul Malik, was a princess. She was the daughter of Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, the previous Khalif, and a sister of some of the uh, Sulaiman ibn Abdul Malik, Walid, all of them. He took off her jewelry and everything and he gave it in the path of Allah back into the Baytul Mal because he says that this is where it was taken from. Amazing work that he did. It shows you that a pious leader can do a lot. Then it has Hassan Basri rahmatullahi. That shows you again an amazing individual who was born in a pious household because his mother used to be a servant for one of the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, wives of the Prophet And what he was taught kept the people at that time very strong because of what he preached to them. He was an amazing personality. We don't have time to go into his history. But it just shows you that when there was a, a problem in the, uh, of opulence and 
uh, indulgence, Hassan Basri rahmatullahi kept the Muslim Ummah strong. Then you move on to another fitna that occurred. The dominance of Hellenistic philosophy dominating Muslim thought. To such a degree that people started having con uh, confusions. In fact, they started denying certain hadith. This is when the Mu'tazila came into being. Mu'tazila, for example, they said that you cannot see Allah in the hereafter. Whereas that's part of our belief that you will see Allah. And they said a number of other things. Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari was actually born among the Mu'tazila. He was trained by them. He was a Mu'tazili. He was actually a great debater. He had a lot of qualities. And they thought that he was going to be their next main superstar. But one day, he comes into the Masjid of Basra, climbs up the mimbar, and he says, he took off his garment, and he said, just the way I take this off, I also take away and remove all my previous beliefs about Mu'tazila. They say he saw a dream. There's other versions of he asked a certain question to his teacher, the great Mu'tazili, and he couldn't answer him. And I don't want to go into the depth about that. But he then became the opponent of the Mu'tazila and managed to destroy their ideology or at least harm it to quite a degree. Thereafter, you have Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, this was also during the time of the Mu'tazila. What they started doing is uh, while uh, Ma'moon al-Rashid, the son of Harun al-Rashid, he was not a Mu'tazili necessarily, but he took some of their beliefs. One of the beliefs he took from them was that the Quran that we have is created. I don't want to go into detail here, but we, Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, throughout the ages, has believed the Quran is the uncreated word of Allah from eternity. But they couldn't reconcile this with their thought. So they said that the Quran is created and they started an inquisition. They started persecuting. Ma'moon al Rashid was a very hasty and angry person. So he had many scholars brought and said, do you believe in it or not? Some of them had to obviously say, I do believe in, you know, and do some ta'wil and, you know, do some, um, uh, what do you call it, use uh, metaphor and so on to avoid. And those who said no, some of them he had killed. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal said, no, I don't believe it's right. I believe in, uh, if you bring me proof, then I can believe it. You can't bring me any proof. The, the, there were numerous Mu'tazila who were brought to try to provide him proof, but none of the proof was good enough. So then finally he was imprisoned. Then Ma'mun al-Rashid died. His brother Mutawakkil Billah took over. He was told to carry this on. So uh, there came a time when he was imprisoned and then he was whipped to such a degree that he fell and fainted. Then what happened is Mu'tasim Billah also died. It's amazing how all of these like die one after the other and then his brother Mutawakkil Billah became the Khalif. Now he was a good person. So now Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal once had to have an operation because of the flogging, the beating. It's amazing. When the surgeon was operating on him, they didn't have any anesthetic in those days. There was no anesthesia. So you just used other means to try to uh, contain the pain. He was saying while he was being operated on, Allahumma ghfir lil mu'tasim. Allahumma ghfir lil mu'tasim. Now this doctor is surprised that he's the one who put you into this pain and you are making dua for him. Oh Allah, forgive this mu'tasim. Why? He said because mu'tasim is from the Banu Abbas, uncle, family of the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. I don't want there to be a case on the day of judgment from me against him on the day of judgment. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, <clears throat> once uh, some people came from a far off area, they say that the Christians in those areas are making dua for you. Because you're such a great person. He lived Islam. So you learn from all of these things what qualities we need to have. There's numerous others for me. One of the most inspirational was Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. Which I think that anybody today, if you know anyone, yourself, anyone else who has doubts about the faith, because of the onslaught of atheism and agnosticism and secularism, and you are doubtful about your faith, then get the book. It's been translated into English. Imam Ghazali wrote his own biography. He wrote his own biography and thanks Allah for that. 
he actually wrote, uh, it's called Al-Munqidh Min Al-Dalal, which basically means deliverance from error. He explains in a very personal, honest way, how he had all of this turmoil and confusion and doubts in his mind about, is Islam the truth and what is the truth and which group is the right one? And he did a research on this, starting from an empty mind and how finally his conclusion was that the way of the Sufis was the way to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Of course, when I mention Sufis, I don't mean exotic Sufis or degenerated Sufis because what you have to remember, I just want to mention this point. If I have a teacher in Hadith or Fiqh, Masail or Tafsir, there's not much abuse that can take place there because the relationship is generally formal. But when you have a Sufi Sheikh, Peer, Murshid, and you become Murid, then because of the close relationship, because of the Aqidat Mandi as you call it, and the close relationship, and sometimes it takes on a cultish, uh, it takes on a cultish kind of scene. And if the, sh- the so-called Peer is a, not a right Peer, then they will abuse the relationship and will make you do things work for things which have nothing to do with Islam. I've seen so many of this going on. Because of the close relationship, it can be very easily exploited. You can't do that in hadith, tafsir and so on. Now because of the problems here, a lot of people have criticized the sawuf, Sufism, and think that the whole thing is wrong. Whereas the essence of it is absolutely right and correct if it's done in the right way. And alhamdulillah, we do have people who are doing it in the correct way. Right? So, you have to always look through the fog and the clouds and don't just jump to conclusions. So Imam Ghazali was the one who is considered to be the one responsible for reviving Sufism and giving a mainstream understanding of it. And numerous other things. I mean, his biography is amazing. You can keep reading him. He is such a celebrated scholar that even non-Muslims in nearly every university that is doing Uh, anything on logic or philosophy, they will have to discuss him. Because he just left an indelible mark. MashaAllah. Then you have uh, other people that he discusses, Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jilani. How in Baghdad alone, he managed to give so many people hope. Connect so many people to Allah. This whole Pir Muridi system of Bay'ah, he reinvigorated and restarted. Because before him, there were people who were connected to scholars, but not the beta system. He started the beta system. That this is the beta to tawbah. This is the pledge of tawbah that you give. And uh, he felt that this was the way to have Islam and religiosity and spirituality spread around the Muslim world. Many Christians and Jews and others would come and sit in his gatherings. And they would, do, they, they would, they would become Muslim. Many people would do tawbah. And subhanallah, his... His sermons, even today, English translation of his khutbat, his lectures, you can still feel the power in them. His, his khutbat, his bayans have been translated by Mukhtar Holland. Wonderful translation. And you actually feel the spirituality coming through it because these were men of Allah. We need to read more of this. And then there was one of my second most inspirational person is Abul Faraj ibn al-Jawzi, the great scholar of Baghdad. He is just, mashallah, a scholar par excellence. In fact, we only have Facebook now and blogs. He started writing a blog in his time. It's called Sayyidul Khatir. The ulama will know it. It's a book called Captured Thoughts. Essentially small, small entries of just things he reflects on and shows the, the, the wisdom and the benefit in these things. Wonderful book and I don't think it's been translated into English. But basically all of this shows us that the challenges that ulama face, challenges that the Muslim face, there's always a response to it. Likewise, finally, you have the crusaders who take over the Muslim lands. So then, Jerusalem is out of our hands. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends two individuals, Nuruddin Zangi and Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, rahmatullahi alayhim. And mashallah, they show us that after all of that that happened in Jerusalem, they bring it back. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still with us. Otherwise, Jerusalem having gone was extremely despond- disp- uh, creating despondency for people. So, 
he, he discusses other scholars in there like Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam. I don't want to go into that. Finally, he discusses the Tatars. Now, that's the most amazing story. Because the Tatars, as I just explained earlier, they ravaged the Muslim lands, killed a million people in Baghdad alone, other cities of the Persia and other places. They just erased to the ground. Within two or three centuries, the four branches of the Tatars, the Mongols, slowly, one by one, they all converted to Islam. Today, the Mufti of Lithuania is a Tatar. He's a friend of mine, I know him. Right? He's a Tatar who's living in Lithuania. I haven't been to Tataristan, which is actually in Russia today. Right? But Tataristan is where Kazan is. And uh, maybe the ulama know Kazan was one of the first printing presses for Hanafi fiqh books. That's Kazan is in Tataristan, which is in Russia today, mainland Russia. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He gives a lot of hope. And just to give you uh, a bit about the author. The author, Shaykh Abul Hassan al-Nadwi, he's from your country. He's from our country. He died. Does anybody know when he died? What date? Sorry? 31st of December 1999. Amazing. If that means anything. Right? Uh, a few months before that, I was studying in Saharanpur. And I heard that he's become ill. So overnight, uh, we booked a ticket. I was there with my wife and my, uh, my son. So you know here, when you can't get quick ticket booking, you buy a general ticket, and then you talk to the TT inside. Right? Now, I don't know if you guys still uh, travel by train, but those were the days we were faqir, right? And we had only so much money as students. So we got in, alhamdulillah, what happened is we got one berth, sleeper, nine hours from Saharanpur to Lucknow. It was an overnight. So I put my wife and son on the one berth, and I took a sheet and I put it on the ground, on that dirty ground, right? Third class, and I slept on the ground. I won't do that again, I promise. Right? I won't do that again. But in those days, we did it. And mashallah, the next day we got there and uh, Maulana was told that we're here to uh, ask for his ijazah in hadith. So he was doing dhikr and so on. He says, okay, come tomorrow at 10 o'clock. I got there the next day, Saturday, I think, or uh, I got there and I was waiting for him. And then finally, you could see he was engaged in dhikr and he was like, kept delaying it, delaying it. And I could see he was in, you know, enjoying his dhikr. And uh, finally, he said, okay, come in. So I read the first hadith of nine books. Bukhari, Muslim, etc. And then he gave me his ijazah. Alhamdulillah. Then after that, a few months, I came back uh, after a few months. He, this was a Friday morning. Uh, this was a Friday morning. And there, there's so much, I don't want to tell you his whole biography because that, that, you, know, you can read about that somewhere else. But uh, what happened is, it was uh, a Friday morning, uh, the, 20, the, the tw uh, 31st of December. 1999 and he woke up at about uh, this was the Friday the 22nd of Ramadan that year so the 31st of December was also the 22nd of Ramadan he awoke at 9 a.m. he completed his daily dhikr adhkar and then he recited Surah Yasin about he used to read it 13 14 times since 9 o'clock, he started reading it 13, 14 times. Then he took a bath. Uh, no, then he made dua for certain people by name. Then he took a bath at 11 o'clock a.m., changed his clothes, and he was preparing for Jumu'ah. He asked for a copy of the Quran so he could recite now Surah Al-Kahf. While he was waiting for the Quran, Mus'haf, to be brought to him, he started reading Yasin again. And he had not finished this Yasin now, and his soul departed. This was about 11.50 a.m., just before Jumu'ah prayer. His nephew, who's uh, Sheikh Maulana Muhammad Rabi' al-Hassani al-Nadawi, he led the funeral prayer. It was done that night, 10.15 p.m. after Tarawih. It was now the 23rd of Ramadan, so odd night of Ramadan. 23rd of Ramadan. What a wonderful death, what a wonderful burial. And a congregation whose size was estimated to be approximately 200,000 people came. I believe this is in Takiakala Rai Bareli, just distance from uh, Lucknow. People came from far and wide. I mean, he was a known mufakkir, known, uh, known scholar. In recent years, there's probably not been any other Islamic personality whose funeral prayer 
has been performed in such a large number around the world. Now as Hanafis, we don't do what we call Jamaat Ghaiba. Like if somebody dies in the community, we do Salat on them if they're there. But if somebody dies in another city in Hanafi Madhab, we don't do Salat Ghaibana. Right? The Shafis do it. Hanbalis do it. So, his Salatul Janazah was performed in the Haramain, both in Makkah Mukarramah and Medina Munawwara, on the 27th of Ramadan. Now that is a gift of Allah. He died 22nd, he was buried 23rd, but 24, 25, 26, 27 they chose to do Salat Ghaibah. Uh, salat in absentia, you call it. And... 2,700,000 2, worshippers performed it in Makkah Mukarramah. 2.7 million people. Did he ask for that? Did he say you must do it? No, they felt obliged to do it. They don't do Salat Ghaibah for too many people. But this is Qubuliyah. And 1.5 million worshippers in Masjid al-Nabawi in Medina Munawwara done his Salat al-Janazah. So, the way the Muslim Ummah, to finish, the way the Muslim Ummah has always survived, how do we do our little part? How do we gain strength and not become hopeless? We need to read our history, number one. And this is one great book to start with. Right? Number two, we need to develop some adhkar for ourselves. We need to adhere to reading the Quran and adhkar for ourselves. The, the Ummah of the past, Imam Ghazali has mentioned this. The Ummah of the past, despite all of the upheavals, many of them worse than today, they managed to go through this even though they were Mamluks and Seljuks and uh, uh, Ayyubids and just constant problems. Khawarism, Shah and all of these people constantly competing with one another, so much killing going on, Tatars and so on. The way they survived is they were connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They did not feel the despondency, though major things had happened. That's why... You must have some adhkar. For example, if you get Al-Hizbul Azam, Dalailul Khayrat, Munajate Maqbul, any of these books, and just read a portion every day. Have some dhikr that you do, 100 istighfar morning and evening, 100 salawat, Durush Sharif morning and evening, a part of the Quran every day. Insha'Allah, that will help because it builds the heart up, it enhances your belief in Allah, it strengthens it, and that really gives you a lot of hope. So don't feel despondent. Businesses may be down. Markets are down. These are just things that happen. There's ups and downs in the market. Make dua. Stay strong. And maybe this will be an opportunity. As opposed to an adversity. That's why one, scholar, uh, one uh, older scholar I met in uh, Mauritania. He said, نَحْنُ al mihan." And I thought, mashallah, it's very hopeful. He says, we are seeing many challenges ahead of us. But in the fold of these challenges rolled up, we see a lot of gifts and bounties. So stay hopeful. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us all, bless the entire Muslim world, bring back humanity to the human being. Wa akhiru da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.